0: You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Luke 6, 46. I'm just compelled uh, in my spirit for us to just bow before the Lord in prayer. Um... I'm just reminded of the events of the last couple of weeks and just the, the lostness and paganism of our planet just encroaching in around us. And in America, we've kind of been secluded for that for the last 50 years or so for the most part, but it is, it is here now, right? And so I just wanna, as I think about the King and all of his beauty and what this Palm Sunday represents in lieu of Easter coming I want us to bow before him. If you're able to take a knee with me, you can. Let's just pray. How worthy, how worthy is our King in all his glory? There's not been a day that the angels have not been surrounding your throne like Isaiah six says, shouting holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Your throne fills the temple, your majesty fills the temple. The trembling pillars in your uh, majestic temple shake and the dust uh, comes loose and the cloud of smoke is surrounding you and we cannot fathom. The glory that we will one day fully behold. We see through a glass dimly shadows of things to come now. But one day you're going to rapture those who are called by your name in faith. You're going to rapture us home to glory. And you're going to separate the wheat from the tares. And so, Father, we cry out to you and beg you, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. This could be the last Palm Sunday we ever stand on this planet. You could come during this message today today. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We'll take it. We pray that you would allow the words, your words, to return, not void, but promise, the promise of fruit bearing with them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if I if I had to ask you, how many of you know the familiar uh, phrase, the proof is in the pudding? Raise your hand if you know... The, that old phrase, "Proof is in the pudding." Well, that phrase actually originated in the 1600s as the saying, "The proof of the pudding is in the eating." But where Marian Webster says the idea of of tasting something to test it goes all the way back to the 14th century. And I got news for Marian Webster; it at least goes back to the Old Testament because the cupbearer Nehemiah, uh, cupbearers would they were number one had to be very trusted because they could easily drop poison and kill the whole king's uh, you know, armies and himself. But they also would have to taste test the, those foods and drinks to, to make sure uh, there wasn't any poison in it. And I have to apologize to those in here that have weak constitutions, but the pudding that they talked about in the middle ages was not like our vanilla. Pudding. It was more like sausage. Uh, what the historians say usually mixtures of minced meat, cereal, spices, and often blood, stuffed into intestines or stomachs, and boiled or steamed. Mmm, delicious. <laughs> right? They could be very good or very bad or possibly fatal. Shocking. Uh, if the meat was contaminated, but to find out, you had to put it to the proof. Right Now the word proof is an interesting word. Uh, The word proof in the Middle Ages is from the word prove. In Anglo-French it was prio, meaning evidence, based on an old French word meaning test. So prove, test, evidence, and both of those meanings are shared by its Latin ancestor probate, which is where we get our English word probation, right? All these tests. In Middle English, proof had meanings relating to both the presenting of evidence that demonstrated a truth and the establishment of fact or truth through testing. That's why we call our materials fire proof, water proof, bullet proof. That's why we call our plans fail proof. That's why we submit papers after we proof them. And friend, when it comes to our faith, Jesus is still putting things to the proof. And there's a great passage about this in Luke 6, 46 through 49, just four verses. And there's a parallel passage to it over in Matthew 7 that I'll allude to a couple of times today. But we're going to read Luke 6, 46 through 49. Would you stand back up, get your calisthenics in honor of God's word, his holy, wonderful, eternally preserved word. Luke six forty six. these are the words of God why do you call me and this is the question today we're in a series if you're new here today we're in a series on questions Jesus asked and here it is why do you call me Lord Lord and not do what I tell you everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them I'll show you what he's like he's like I want to ask Kim Randall to come and ask God's blessings on our service today. Tim. All right, dear Lord, thank you for bringing us here together this morning. Just uh, give Went the words that you know he needs to say this morning and uh, something for us to take with us this week. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Tim. Y'all can be seated. Well, when Jesus asked that question in in Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you, it could only mean one thing, right? It meant there were already, at the time he said that, deceived disciples following him, all right? They had a Christian mask, but an unbelieving heart. And intentional or unintentionally, they were imposters of the faith. You've all seen movies uh, where someone's in disguise, you know, making an arms, they pose as an arms dealer, you know, and and uh, everything's, they're fooling everybody pretty well until their voice cracks or, uh, you know, their, their accent gets found out or they're, fake mustache starts to fall off, right? Or the real arms dealer walks in and they know, you know, they're busted, right? And of course, those are just fictitious Hollywood stories. But real imposters walk among us, all right? Uh, Barbara Bentley was a stable 35-year-old lab tech, true story, when she met Rear Admiral John Perry at a dinner with friends. And some of you may be familiar with this story. I don't know. You may have seen it on the news or something. But Perry was this mysterious man and he kind of drew Miss Bentley in with all these heroic World War II uh, stories, war stories and tales of uh, lost comrades tales of flying with the Blue Angels and fighting in Vietnam. And Perry's father was even supposedly portrayed by John Wayne in a World War II movie himself. So Bentley fell fast for this man, right? And he continued to dazzle her and all their friends with like medals that he would display very proudly in their living room. And he would occasionally at dinner parties don his naval uniform. Um, And he'd been in pictures with all these dignitaries, high-ranking officials, even had the then-president George H.W. Bush, salute him uh, during his inauguration. And so uh, he was quite the man. Just one small problem. Perry was an imposter. Perry the imposter, right? His stories were fabrications. Now, his father was a real admiral in the Navy, but Perry himself never served, right? And matter of fact, he wasn't even listed in his father's obituary because he was the black sheep of the family and the FBI had a warrant out for him for impersonating an officer. So nine years into this marriage, Perry tried to kill Barbara in a secluded hotel room in Washington, D.C. And she actually wrote a book about it uh, called A Dance with the Devil, (laughs) appropriately entitled. And she said, listen to this, good psychopaths can charm the birds out of trees. They can trick you, can't they? And that's basically what our text is about today. Only it's much more life-threatening than an undercover cop getting busted or a con man, right, getting his cover blown. These are eternal Matters and so, in luke six forty six we want to start by looking at what makes up a deadly disguise, right The details of a deadly disguise, the traits of a traitor, the crafts of a con man, and obviously we 're talking about spiritual con men or should I say conned men sometimes they 're conning themselves into thinking they 're saved, right, but these traits are deadly because they 're often indistinguishable from true faith. Fake faith, phony people are sometimes indistinguishable from the real thing. And so let's look at some of these. First, these are people who called Jesus Lord, Lord. Luke six forty six. why do you call me Lord, Lord? And there's three things I want to say about this addressing Jesus this way. Number one, it was vocal. It was a spoken declaration. Y'all know that we notice uh, in You know, when a public figure, some uh, politician or an athlete or maybe even an actor is interviewed on the news uh, and they give glory or thanks to Jesus, not just like God, they're specific with the Lord or Jesus, right? Our our spiritual senses kind of perk up and when they say praise the Lord, they're like, oh, okay, we take note of that. Uh, When tornadoes a couple of weeks ago touched down in Mississippi, Vicky and I were on the phone with our uh, son Elijah and his pregnant uh, wife our daughter-in-law uh, and uh, they were sheltering in the bathroom with our grandson Asher who was screaming in the background and uh, so and if during that time there's a video that surfaced and you may have seen this of chief meteorologist Matt Lauben, who was tracking the same storm and when he saw the numbers and how bad it was he just it kind of overwhelmed him and he stopped right on Live TV and prayed, you know, dear Jesus, just a simple prayer. But dear Jesus, help them. He he said the name of Jesus publicly, and I'm thankful. We, I think, in general, are thankful for people praying or giving thanks to Christ in public, right? Even if it's for something as simple as a sports victory, we still kind of like it, right? And as junior believers, let me just say this: I don't want us to go around skeptical. These these disguises I'm telling you you don't have to go around and saying yeah they look like genuine believers but after that sermon today I don't know you know you know so I mean we're not that's not who I'm speaking to right but I'm speaking to unbelievers who have these indistinguishable details or rebelling believers whose words don't match their works right To them, I'm saying a confession of Jesus isn't genuine by word alone, right? These followers quite scarily were speaking Jesus, calling him Lord. Number two, Lord, Lord meant allegiance. All right. The term Lord is one of like humbling respect to call Jesus Lord is to proclaim our allegiance to him. It's like saying, you command my utmost obedience. That's why Matthew 7, 21 says, Now, there, uh, now everyone who says to me, uh, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, here's the thing. In both Matthew and Romans, Matthew 10.32 says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I'll also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Well, okay, weren't these people doing that? Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Well, weren't these people confessing? This is why Luke 6 demands our attention because Jesus was speaking about followers who had acknowledged and had audibly confessed but they lacked the outward effects of true allegiance all right to call jesus lord is to say i should and must obey your words lord lord it was audible it meant allegiance and third it assumed intimacy to call jesus lord once was enough right my lord Right. But to repeat the word, Lord, Lord, this was wasn't just some form of like emphatic declaration. Uh, historians and scholars say the doubling of a name in Scripture was an address of intimacy. Right. We've, we've got some examples of this in Scripture. Uh, Genesis twenty-two, eleven. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. 1 Samuel 3, verse 10, And the Lord came and stood, calling out at, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Luke 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. This is a deadly disguise because these followers had said, Lord, Lord, which is exactly what genuine believers say beware of the voice without the choice beware of proclamation without visible demonstration beware the second part of the deadly disguise is seen in the difference between the two types of followers which are represented by the two builders in the story right the builders just represent follow, true followers and fake followers right so first they say lord lord and second They've come to hear the words of the Lord, right? This isn't some deathbed confession. They've been walking with the Lord. They're familiar with the gospel story of Jesus. They have traveled to Jesus and they have heard the words of Jesus. So when Jesus says in uh, Luke 647, everyone who comes to me and hears my words, he's applying that to both builders, right? The one who on the solid rock foundation and the one with no foundation, Right? Who in the parallel story over in Matthew 7, in verse 24, uh, one is a wise man. In verse 26, he's a foolish man. Those are the two people. Both the foolish and the wise have come to Jesus and they have heard his words. Early in the, earlier in the, in the chapter, in Luke 6, 17, it says, And he, Jesus, came down with them with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people who came to hear him they spoke Jesus, they heard Jesus, and third, they both built a house, right? They accomplished something for God. They, they declared Jesus Lord. They came to hear from him. And once they heard, they proceeded to do something. They started to do something. They both actually built a house. They both think they're building the kingdom of heaven. Right? That's another reason these details are a deadly disguise. Now, the world the word build just simply means to construct a house in a literal sense. But obviously, this is metaphorical uh, in building spiritual buildings. Our spiritual acts, every time we obey the Lord, we're helping to build our own spiritual maturity. And simultaneously building the kingdom of God brick by brick, right? The scriptures that we study and share with one another, that's like digging a little bit deeper trench in the foundation of our faith for the kingdom of God, right? Every bag of concrete that goes in, right? That's like a little more in the foundation. Every prayer we pray is like another hammer nail in the framework and and the shingles putting that roof on, our obedience, though we cannot see it, we are building the invisible kingdom of God. It's not just invisible, is it, right? It's visible right here in the faith and the works that we are a part of. Now, it's interesting here. All three uses of this word build, they have the same root word, but different tenses, right? Like past, present, future. The doer in Luke six forty eight is like a man building a house. That's a, that's a participle ing you know participles in an ing so that word building is in the present tense meaning the building is ongoing the non-doer in Luke 6 48 is like a man who built a house that word built is in the aorist tense which refers to the past so the wise man's work is ongoing constant home improvements that's the time for home improvements isn't it Get new plants in. How many dead plants have I seen on the streets of Collierville this week? Right from those those freezes through the winter. It's ongoing home improvement, active, present, continuous. But the un- the unwise work, like the no foundation work, is done before it starts because its walls, its foundation is built to fail. That's why I love Proverbs twenty one four: the plowing of the wicked are sin. Right? John 3.18 makes clear. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's like the walking dead. They may plow a field and produce the same yield as we do, but they're not fulfilling their original and eternal purpose to do all things for the glory of God. Colossians 3.23. And so they're, they're plowing in vain. James 2.26 says, As the body apart from the spirit is dead, So also, faith apart from works is dead. MacArthur even believes that their two houses uh, must have been built in the same place because they seem to have withstood the same storm, all right? Meaning the location of the home didn't give either one an advantage. It wasn't the location of the home. It was how they built it. And it's implied they built the same kind of house, like in terms of the general structure of the house, which is the very point, Jesus is making in this, is this, in this comparison. On the outside, the wise and the foolish look the same, right, therein lies the deadly disguise of inactive faith, right, it's a stick on mustache, <laughs> right, a fake accent, those are the details of a deadly disguise, the frightening similarities between fake faith and true, saving, working faith. But what about the differences? This is what we'll call the proof of identity. What's the proof of our identity? The specifications of sincerity. How do I know and how do others know who I really am in Christ? What are are the giveaways, right? How do we spot the fake? How do I know if our own faith is real? And folks, this is extremely important. Right? These truths will help take your kids through college if they've made decisions as 10-year-olds. Right? How many Baptists have been baptized 17 times? Right? Well, I didn't know if i minute at that time. Well, I didn't know if i minute at that time. Well, I didn't know if a minute that time. Because they have all these doubts about things. And so this is where it all comes into play. Right? Both the rock foundation and the no foundation spoke Jesus, both came to Jesus, both heard Jesus, both built or were building or thought they were building for Jesus. So how do I know if they're that good? How do I know if I'm wise or foolish or if my house will last? What are the distinguishing characteristics? Well, and I really need to preface all this first by saying the contrast of these two builders and their homes that they constructed were not distinguishable on the outside initially, right? They did prove themselves eventually, right? Proverbs 24, 12 says, If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And he will not repay, will he not repay man according to his work? Proverbs 16.2, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. 1 Samuel sixteen verse seven. man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's why my mom, when me and my brother would get in a fight, and she would like hold us, you know, and be like, hey, you say something good about your brother. I said, well, Jim runs fast. Right. right? And then she would look at My brother and say, You say something good about about Went. Say something good about him. And so she, you know, he'd be like, Oh, he's a good tree climber. And then when my mom looked away at me, I hate you. I'm gonna kill you. (laughs) So obviously we had the words, sorry, sorry, not sorry, right? right as soon as mom leaves the room, we're gonna be back at it. So we need some internal measuring devices, right? We like one of those fancy heat probes you put inside a brisket to know if it's cooked well on the inside. So here are three measuring devices of, of real builders. right? A real builder uses God's blueprint. Second Timothy 3:16 says, "All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training, in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good faith." Is that what it says? No, it says work. They'll be equipped for good work, not saving work, but good work. The Gospel of John takes that statement even further when it says in John 1, 1 and verse 14, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was was with God and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us as Jesus, right? Right? And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word is Jesus and Jesus is truth and His truth we must obey. I was just sharing with a friend this week about uh, two scriptures that offer more certainty, how the scriptures in general, the Bible, the written words of God offer more certainty than if someone died. And was right here and we got nurses in here a couple of them Madison and Regina and others and y'all came up here and you tested to see if this person was dead and sure enough they're coded call the coroner and then I came down and I prayed over in the name of Jesus and they arose from the dead boy if that happened these lost people in here believe wouldn't they Sue Ann no not according to Scripture Luke 6 this is the first and by the way even if you're not a note-taker these two verses are worth writing down Luke 16, 19, this is the story of the rich man who died and was in hell, and he cried out to Abraham and Lazarus, who are were, who were also dead, but in heaven. And he basically begged them, please come drop a drop of water on my tongue, I'm in torment. And in Luke 16, 36, Abraham says, I can't, there's a great chasm fixed between us, and we can't go back and forth between you and me. So the rich man said, well, I got five brothers on earth, at least go warn them. And, and Abraham said, listen, if they got Moses and the prophets which is the Bible. They've got the Bible. If they won't listen to the Bible, they, uh, you know. And he goes, no, no, no. If they see someone go to them from the dead, if they see, you know, if they see you go, Abraham, and appear to them in spirit, oh, they'll repent. And Abraham said some profound words in Luke 16, 31. These are profound words. If they do not hear, Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Of course, you know Moses and the prophets is a reference to uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books that they believe Moses wrote, and all the prophets, minor and major, just based on the length. They call them minor prophets because they're shorter books. Major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, are the longer books. All right? So he's talking about the then written Word of God. He said, if they don't believe them, there's no way. if they don't obey God's blueprint, you wouldn't obey if you saw a thousand miracles. No blueprint equals lost soul, equals foolish builder, equals no foundation, equals immediate and great ruin. Luke 6, 49, when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. It didn't gradually fail. It was boom, down. And the ruin of that house was Great. Matthew 7.15 put it this way, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And of course, last year we went through the book of Galatians and went over the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? The false prophets of Matthew 7 were singing that old, uh, was it George Strait who sang, I got some oceanfront property and... I'm oh good. I like that. Take it on the road, right? The Piperton Church Choir. All right? Listen, Jesus is saying, look, that sand's going to wash away. What you need is petra. And petra means rock. And by the way, it doesn't mean a single stone or a single boulder. Word studies say that petra means, and that's the word used here, by the way, in the text, a mass of connected rock, which is distinct from petros, which is a detached stone or boulder. Petra is a solid or native rock rising up through the earth stable, unmovable, unshakable that's what God's blueprint calls for one pastor referring to the scribes and Pharisees said it this way They had no spiritual or moral substance or stability. They were shifting sand composed entirely of opinions, speculations, and standards of men. Those who created and followed them took no account of obedience to God's Word, purity of heart, spirituality of the soul, or integrity of behavior. Their only concern was for appearance, the compelling desire to be seen and honored by men. The blueprint is the Bible, the words of God. And it's the only rock that a Christian life can be built on. Second, internal thermometer here. A real builder has a faithful work ethic, right? One word word study explains, since both a Christian church and individual Christians are likened to a building, and I could give you a, a dozen verses on this, uh, in, in which God or the Holy Spirit dwells, we are the temple of God, right? The construction of which temple will not be completely finished till the return of Christ from heaven. Then those who by action, instruction, exhortation, comfort, promote the Christian wisdom of others and help them to live a correspondent life are regarded as, that's us, taking part in the construction of that building. Now I think 1 Corinthians 3:9 says it a little bit more simplistically. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building." First Thessalonians 5:11, "Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. As one scholar noted, one's response to Jesus' query, his question, is not simply to begin doing what He says. The issue is one of lordship. You may hear in our church us talk about lordship salvation. Like Christ isn't just a name I say, He's my Lord, He controls my life. Commitment, the offer of allegiance and fidelity. Hence the initial question is, on what basis might people refer to Jesus as Lord? Within the structure of Jesus' message, the corresponding answer would be that they must embrace His topsy-turvy characterization of the world. What does that mean? That means the Christian's life is upside down, right? The weak are strong, the poor are rich, the humble are great. He who is last is first, right? It's topsy-turvy the way the world conceives it, right? We must be transformed in our dispositions and engage in the loving of enemies, the doing of good, lending without exception of return. That is, in practices determined by the gracious character of God. Church, if you're afraid of being stretched, and sanctified and challenged in your faith, then listen buddy, don't join the construction crew of God. Because I'm gonna tell you, when you're in that ditch digging it for that foundation and pouring those bags of concrete, you're gonna get tired. And when you're on that roof, putting that roof on, you're gonna sweat like a dog. And it's gonna be tiring and you're gonna to wanna to give up. And if you, ain't, if you can't handle the construction crew of God, then you can't handle real faith. But you can by the power of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2.12 says, therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, and he's not saying they've always obeyed every moment of the day, but they've been about pursuing the obedience of Christ. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, not for salvation, Work out the salvation you already have. Real builders use God's word as their blueprint. They have a faithful work ethic. And lastly, a real building withstands the storm. A flimsy foundation of disobedience may fool a realtor. It may fool a basic home inspection, right? But buddy, it ain't going to fool that storm. The storm will show it. The storm will show what it's made of. Now listen to God's word here, people. Some of you are angry because you're in the storms of life. And I'm trying to tell you what God's word tell you, tells you. And that's that the storm is the very thing that tests the genuineness and sincerity of your faith. Praise God for the storms. It's what tells me I'm a believer because I'm still around. Amen. You're still here. You got up and came to church today. Hallelujah. Right. Right. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, and, and our life on earth compared to eternity in heaven is so minuscule, as grand a, grand a grain of sand on all the seashores in the world. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which by the way is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the very thing that brings God glory the most for you to ride your faith through the storm. Your house is hit with loss of life and it's brutal and it's scarring and it's violent. But you wake up the next day and the next day and you still have faith in God. And he's still leading you. And so you just get on your knees and you praise God, to him be the glory. Your marriage falls on rocky times. And, and, and I'm not talking about a past marriage, all right? We all have mistakes and failures. I'm talking about whoever you've committed to now in marriage. I don't care if it's your third or fourth spouse, it's the one you're with and the one you're biblically committed to. And if you live to see another day, you know, you're on rocky times and your marriage lives to see another day, another date night, you begin to get back on the same page, same bed start kind of parenting hand in hand again praise god you've made you made it through a storm you who are broken in your sin get up repent and praise god for your proof of identity i've told y'all before the greatest moment in my life as a father uh, up to that date was when my oldest son elijah broke down at, at at a young age he had already trusted Christ and been baptized, but like, anybody can do that. How do, what's the proof of identity? His brokenness over his sin. I confronted him about something, and he broke down in tears and confessed his sin. And I wept, because it was proof of identity in my kid's life. If you feel bad, good, good. Repent and praise Jesus, because you've got proof of identity. Because Satan ain't making you feel bad for sin. Satan says, go go for it, man. You did that, why not do a little more? John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. What? He just compared the way he knows us to the way he's known his own son for all eternity that's the same no he knows us the same way he says I know them and I lay down my life for the sheep to know him is to obey him to obey him is to build the kingdom of God in our hearts and in our church and when we use the blueprint the foundation will not crumble Philippians 1 6 is a promise I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? It's coming. I'm going to be complete. I've still got some cracks, but, you know, he's going to glue those last pieces in one day. (laughs) No more death, no more tears, no more sin and shame. And speaking of completion, when Christ died on the cross, what was the last word he said? Telesti, which it means it is finished. His work is finished. Or paying for our debt has been paid off. We just got to sign the contract with faith and repentance and works that prove it. The works don't make us saved, they prove it. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The proof is in the pudding, right? Doing what Jesus says doesn't save us, right? If the pudding was bad, it was bad before we tasted it wasn't it <laughs> it's was already bad we just proved it was bad but the proof was in the testing when we obey we taste the proof of our own salvation because i don't want to obey i'm a rebel i'm a rebel you're a rebel we're right you know like the dr pepper commercial right we're rebels so when we want to pursue obedience, it's identity proof. Praise God for the proof of identity in your homes and the lives of your children. get on your knees before him and thank Him. Put you stand. Father, what may the works of our lives be a taste test of salvation? Proof, evidence of the holy spirit's grace the grace that saved us working out through us building the kingdom of god brick by brick with every kind word with every scripture spoken with every prayer prayed with every uh, baby held in nursery god that, uh, with every witness door to door with every uh, with, even with every dollar we put in to the kingdom building of your church That every element of our lives, every every late night conversation with our kids about scriptures, every uh, prayer that a mother has prayed over their children or a father, every one of them we're creating, we're building this foundation, we're digging it deep. And I thank you for the people of Piperton that helped make that so by their daily, faithful, broken, imperfect obedience. Lord, I pray now if there's people here today that have not called on the name of the Lord, they would start to comprehend how much you love us. And that they wouldn't just cry, Lord, Lord. It's not some fancy little prayer that we pray. This this actual passage proves a prayer doesn't get you there. Unless it's genuine, unless it's proven. And so I pray, God, that in the hearts of anyone here that doesn't know you today, that they would cry out. Say, Lord, I I don't even know what it's like to be sincere and genuine with myself, but I want to be sincere and genuine with you. I want to repent of my sin. I want to turn from my sin. I want to trust in Jesus today. If you do that, you can come and make that profession of faith public right here today. And if you're uh, kind of a backslidden, what we always call in Baptist circles, backslidden, but we're just unrepentant sins that haven't gone confessed works that haven't been lived out, faith that hasn't been worked out, I pray you'd lead us to repentance and help us to start to work out our faith more clearly and visibly, not to be seen by men, but to honor God and to prove our identity. I pray that you'd give more people, send more people to our church to volunteer, to serve, to work out their gifts through the kingdom of God and his bride, the church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.